everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. It's been a long time since we visited the biological principles of strength development. If you're a new coach, a student, or just a curious athlete, this episode is vital to understanding some of the more complex concepts of human performance, like rate of force development, compensatory acceleration, hypertrophy, post-activation potentiation, and so much more. A huge thank you to our guest, Antonio Schian, for making these concepts digestible, even for the power athlete meathead. Here it is, episode 588. You know, I think the most difficult uh, aspect of it is not just understanding the manual. I put myself in the shoes of like a recent graduate from like an undergrad degree, like that was born after the year 2000. Like some of those words are not even around anymore. Like they were used 20, 30 years ago and maybe someone with a bit, of, a bit more experience can understand what they're referring to. But some of the linguistic of our field has changed significantly over the last 10, 15 years. So maybe the concepts are there. It's just difficult to grasp them because they use different words, you know? Uh, can you give us some examples? Uh, if you look at uh, the way we... Something that I'm not very uh, enthusiastic about, but we tend to classify strength and put a label to it, like... Explosive strength, power, speed strength, strength speed. Uh, that's more of a way of like, it's a taxonomical approach. We're labeling things and we're putting them in order. But if you look at the original manuals, and it's not just Verkozhansky, it's Bosco, it's Komi, Akinen. There's either strength, which can be uh, maximum isometric force or dynamic force. If you look at like weight training or weight lifting. And there's power. There's nowhere else, nothing else in between. And yeah. there are different variations of like either strength endurance or power endurance. But all these nuances that we have nowadays where we classify things are like strength, speed, speed, strength. They make a lot of sense because we have more data to create a classification nowadays that we used to have. But it's still like, I mean, strength is strength, you know, like once uh, you label. I agree with you. And- I, I, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. When I originally read it, I was like, okay, so wait a minute. If you do this specific movement, and what I've always known about strength and performance is it doesn't exist in a vacuum. So it's not like, well, you did 12 reps here. If you had done eight, it would have been strength speed. But now all of a sudden, because you did this, it's uh, speed strength. And it just always felt like more of a concurrent training model that this was like the the spectrum you were trying to hit and the focus. And I think uh, it overcomplicated the shit out of it. And I think... Um, uh, Dr. Berkashansky had a blog or a, a forums and he was pretty active on, on some forums before he passed away. So I, uh, I used to dive in and I would read his forums and people would ask him these like incredibly fucking nuanced questions. And he would just blast them with like the fucking general, like, uh, like, you know, like, well, if, if I do three reps here of this and this and this, and I remember he just probably just was like pulling his hair out because these, uh, the nuanced discussion, he's like, at the end of the day, you know, who are you trying to train? What's the training effect? And is the effect that you are applying resulting in what you wanted to do? And that was like what I got from his entire blog. But then I just got, uh, it was just packed with these fucking nerds who just wanted to dive into this, like unbelievable level of minutia who weren't training athletes who weren't training athletes who were all like trying to secret squirrel their own training in the garage or just didn't have a large population of athletes to work with um but he was super active on it and it was always very very interesting and having read all of his work man i mean the one is they used to always refer to him as the father of plyometrics 
and he was like the king to like dead denounce that he's like i'm not the father of plyometrics and uh it was just it, there was just a lot of misconceptions and i just enjoyed reading his uh the post i agree with you so much and you know what fascinates me a lot is that if you truly read the manual and super training and you spend a little bit more time understanding what they're referring to you'll find references to a post-activation potentiation back in the 60s early 70s there are um, data and studies on velocity-based training that are dated before 1970 uh, they were they pioneered some of the most advanced methods of periodized training that just recently we started to figure it out with research so everything you really need as a strength and conditioning coach is in those two books. Whether you want to see it or not is there. Then it's up to you to be able to like just read outside the box of the constraints of like just wording and phrasing and translating and try to understand what they're describing. And you find there's so much to it. They just, they didn't have the science yet to explain it all. Like if you look at the way they, Verkozhansky uh, explains like uh, post-activation potentiation is very much like, it's more like philosophical than scientific. It, it refers to like an imprinting on the CNS, a potentiating effect of like heavy loading. It doesn't have the science behind it to explain why it's working, but coming from 30 plus years of experience coaching elite level athletes, he knew it worked and he knew how to make it work. So it's very fascinating. Nowadays, we tend to complicate things instead of make them easier with science sometimes. Yeah, no, we, uh, I mean, post-activation potentiation has been a huge hallmark in all of my programs and stuff that I used when I was playing the NFL, even in the you know late 90s, early 2000s. It was always like something heavy, something dynamic. And it was uh, like if we did a heavy squat, it was a heavy sprint. You know, if it was a heavy pull, it was a heavy jump. I mean, so there was always like the uh, something heavy, something dynamic with opposing movements. You know, if you think about a bilateral hip hinge versus this, I mean, so it was pretty simple. And we found that like if we could squat a heavy triple and then immediately roll into like an all out 20 yard sprint, uh, all of a sudden when we came back, the quality of movement was better on the triple and the sprinting was better opposed from, let's say you did like six sets of three on the, on the, on the squats opposed from like six sets of three on the twenties and did them different or did them separately. So we started mixing it up and we realized like, Oh, post-activation potentiation. I remember, uh, when we, I was training with Roth. I remember it was like maybe 2000, 2001, and he's in there reading super training. And he's like, hey, let's give this a shot. And uh, that was where a lot of like our, you know, 20 plus years ago, a lot of being, a lot of uh, training and a lot of stuff came from a lot of the, if we're going to do something heavy, we got to do something dynamic. And we still see it today, those roots in our programming. All right, Antonio, you have had an awesome career. We were introduced to thanks to Brian Mann for connecting us just in the random NSCA coaches conference. That's just what happens. Cool people connect. And uh, you were sharing some of your experience and we got, we got rugby, we got your, your education to, as a teacher, what you're researching now. And then one thing I'm excited for you and John to get into is a big, big motor guy. So F1 guy. Mm. Um, so how, how did you end up in uh, at USC? And like, let's, let's incorporate your sport and athletic background and, and really get into it today. Wow. I'll try to keep it short. Thank you for the question though. Um, well, I, I was born and raised in Italy, so I grew up in Italy. Um, my first sport was actually go-karting. I started go-karting when I was eight years old and I raced at a fairly decent level up until I was like 14, 15. 
And I actually started training in a weight room, training in a gym, because after I hit puberty, I gained a lot of weight and I got taller and I was too heavy to raise go-karts. So I wanted to lose as much weight as possible. And that's what brought me to the weight room. That's how I started training when I was like, probably, I think my mom gave me like my first membership at the gym when I was like 14 years old. And it just happened that as I was getting more into fitness, uh, go-karting became way too expensive for us to be able to afford it. It was just, it was always a family business. It was just me and my dad. We never had a professional team. We were doing everything ourselves from building the go-kart to racing and tuning and everything. I think I built my first engine when I was like 12 with my dad. And um, when I realized that I realized there was no future for me in, in go-karting and, and I was fairly decent at athletics in general, I picked up uh, some track and field uh, training and competitions throughout high school, uh, mostly like sprinters, but I was sprinting, but I was never good at it. Uh, throwing, I was a little bit better at it. Uh, and then getting stronger and getting bigger and getting faster. Some of my friends asked me, why don't you try to play rugby? Which is the, in Italy back then was the only sport where you were allowed to be bigger and stronger. That was fine. That was good. So I did play for a little bit, but I never really got into it to the extent that I should have to become competitive. Um, and one of my good friends back then said like, okay, well, let's try American football, which is a super teeny tiny niche sport in Italy that almost no one practiced. Uh, but ended up being uh, love at first sight. So I just enjoyed it. I loved it. I played it throughout college for four years. Uh, after college, I tried to play professional for another two or three years in Europe with modicum success, nothing crazy. I mean, European football is nothing compared to American football. You know, like at the best of our days, a good game would look like a bad game in Division One in current football. So it's, the level is not super, super high. Uh, but the thing that was was good and was very uh, uh, motivating for me was that when, when we were looking at like sheer athleticism and just strength and power and speed, I played against some of the best athletes I've ever came across in Europe. And they were like, oh, from Germany, Austria, uh, Netherlands, like Northern Europe. They were strong. They were fast. I mean, I was my first, my last year of football, I was 315 pounds. And those yeah. guys were just as heavy as I was. And they were twice as fast as I was. And they hurt when, when they were coming <laughs> at you, it was not pleasant, but that's how I got into more like strength training and strength and conditioning. Uh, I was, I started school as a biology major, but then I uh, quickly switched over physical education just to learn more about uh, strength and conditioning because we didn't have a strength and conditioning coach. We barely had a coach in American football back then because it was such a little sport with no funding, no money. So we were all like, that was like 2009, 10, 11, where like internet just started to grow in Italy. We were like a little behind the States. So we were just downloading like bigger, faster, stronger routines or like uh, bodybuilding type of routine. And it was all about like getting bigger, getting stronger, lifting big weights. There was very little like Olympic lifting, was very little plyometrics. It was very old school raw type of training and that's how I like I don't know like I always felt like that was just simply not right for the way I was like studying in school and that pushed me to on one end like continue my education and try to learn more and get better and on the other end just try to train better to be a better athlete so the, the two things went end in end uh, until early 2013 
when like I, I went on, I, I worked as a strength coach for uh, the national team, national rugby team for women in Italy. Uh, but I wanted to work with American football players. So that's how I ended up eventually moving to the States. And then once I got into the system of like strength and conditioning in NCAA, I did the old path from like division three to division one. And I, I worked in Canada for a bit. And my last experience coaching full-time was actually with a track and field team back in 2016. Uh, we trained all the way to uh, the Olympic trial trials in uh, Oregon, Eugene that year. And that's where like, I really realized, I remember we flew to Eugene and we were just all training together on the field in the weight room. There were a lot of athletes from all over the place. And there were also a lot of coaches and many, many coaches with much more experience than I had. And I thought, I thought I knew it all because I made it to the, like coaching at the Olympic trials. It doesn't get any better than that. But then I heard these coaches like talking with their athletes and like explaining things and programming things. And I just realized I, I knew nothing compared to those guys. And if I wanted to get somewhat better in my profession, I would probably have to pursue more education. And so I kind of like, I don't want to say quit coaching because I still did some coaching on uh, in a private facility, but I went back to school and one thing led to the other. And just here I am now doing a PhD program at USC. So I just switched from 100% practitioner to almost 100% research within the last five to six years. Well, a lot of experience to now bring to research. Yeah. And that's something we've spoken where people just finish degree, 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 and they never miss or never take that time to apply. Sure. Power Athlete Nation want to take one minute to remind you why Power Athlete is performance for the people. We love the garage shimmer. We love the athlete that is taking their performance into their own hands. We offer eight different strength and conditioning programs reverse engineered from common goals like getting jacked, becoming more athletic, or introducing the barbell for the first time. To learn which program is best for you, head to powerathletehq.com training. If you're an enthusiast, a parent, or a professional coach, we also offer education. At academy.powerathletehq.com, learn the method to the madness, the Power Athlete methodology, and a hell of a lot more. Next up, shop.powerathletehq.com. Hoodies, tees, sweats, shorts, you name it, we got it, including posters. You put this up in your garage gym, you're staring at it underneath the bar, I guarantee that you're going to add 10% to your next rep max. And finally, you can check us out on YouTube. We're dropping movement demonstrations, going through our setup and execution of the finer movements found on all of our Power Athlete training programs and cutting clips of this podcast that you're listening to right now. So if you want to share in this experience with your lifting buddies, go ahead, seek out Power Athlete on YouTube. And now, back to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference once you see like, especially younger students coming out of like undergrad grad programs, they, they know, they know, they know very well, they know science very well, but uh, in research, what I've learned, at least in my, in our field, like I'm not speaking for everyone, but at least in the sports science type of field, um, there's very little that needs to be discovered and reinvented. It's more about like asking the right questions to look at things in the right way and in a way that can translate evidence into practice to improve the way we work with athletes. It's very much, our research has to be applicable. If we just 
do research for the sake of doing research, our field is not going to change much. We need to be able to ask the right questions and find the right answers for practitioners to improve the way they work with athletes. And that's what I've, I've tried to do since I switch over to more research and less practice. Um, pretty much every single study I've, I've been part of, or part of or I've done started from a question that I asked myself back when I was working and I didn't have an answer for. And now here I am. I want to find the answer. So studies on eccentric training, uh, BFR, uh, we're doing some studies on velocity-based training. Those are all questions that I've had developed working on the field with athletes. And believe it or not, those questions, you develop them when you do your worst mistakes ever, you start questioning yourself because we have all done mistakes along the way. Like that's how you learn, right? But if you can use those, if you can use that experience to formulate questions and then you have a way to answer this question with a scientific method, then that will change our field for good, I think. What are some of the studies? I mean, you just briefly glossed over uh, eccentrics, BFR. Um, you know, what are some of the studies that you've done? And more importantly, what are some of the groundbreaking revelations that you can pull out of it? Uh, studies, we've done quite a good number of studies on different topics. I think the most recent one, um, ones are like, we looked at uh, optimal loading for power output in weightlifting derivatives and weightlifting movements. Uh, we looked at the effect of the acute effect of BFR on power development and rate of force development. Uh, but what I'm really interested into, and in, in, and it's probably the core work for my uh, final dissertation, is the effect of uh, something that is like not very common nowadays in strength and conditioning, which is supramaximal eccentric training, mm -hmm. which is not the eccentric training that we all learn how to do, uh, even just by reading Polyquin and doing time under tension, where you like you lift weights that are not excessively heavy, but you control the eccentric to increase time under tension. What I'm referring to is like lifting weights that are like 120, 130% of, of your one rep max that you can only slow down. You can't come back up from a squat when you're squatting that heavy, or you can't push on a bench press when you're bench pressing that heavy. And what I'm interested in, if, if we look at the way research approached uh, eccentric training after the 80s, when Akin and Komi were researching, uh, this topic, it became an all or nothing type of approach. Like, if you only use eccentric training, super maximal eccentric training, uh, then you're only going to get stronger in terms of like being able to generate more isometric force. But your performance in dynamic tasks such as jumping or sprinting would probably not change much because eccentric training per se is not very sport specific. Mm -hmm. However, there's some good into like adding eccentric training to your routine which every single study published up until 1982 showed that like 10, 20% of your total training volume is more than enough to do eccentric training. And there's benefit that comes with uh, an extra degree of structural adaptation that you don't get when you don't lift those big weights. And for structural adaptation, I'm looking at mostly changing active and passive stiffness. So your muscle and the connective tissue within changes in response to more mechanical damage. And the only way to increase mechanical damage is to lift bigger weights. And if you want to lift the bigger weights you possibly can handle, you have to do that eccentrically. And that's where my research lies on, like looking at what happens at the molecular level in response to eccentric training, uh, looking at overall connective tissue. So like basic anatomy that we learn in school, like epimysium, endomysium, perimysium, if that connective tissue changes, but also within the cytoskeleton of muscle cells, if there's a response that 
and that's what I'm finding out just by doing like basic literature review, uh, a change in tithing contents, which is a protein that allows your muscle to store a use elastic energy more efficiently. So if I can improve stiffness, active and passive stiffness, means that I can improve my ability to use gravity to my own advantage because I can store more elastic energy and I can use more elastic energy to be more explosive. So ultimately I can improve performance sport by making athletes more explosive and more resistant, more resilient to injuries as well. So I think there's a lot that comes with eccentric training, but it needs to be well done. And in, unfortunately it needs to be very, very heavy. Well, and, uh, and also there has to be a whole preparatory phase um, where, you know, somebody develops not only like the base level of GPP to be able to survive it, but mm-hmm. also develops a lot of the tensile strength associated with it. Like you take somebody that's not in physically good shape and not used to handling heavy loads. And then all of a sudden you load them up with 120% of their one RM and ask them to do a, you know, three to four second eccentric. And all of a sudden you're going to see like, you know, fucking things exploding everywhere. And, uh, I, I know that, uh, when we did big, heavy eccentric blocks, it was always after like a huge preparatory phase. And I yeah. think where a lot of people fuck this stuff up is they kind of like choose their own adventure and go to the very end. And they don't realize that you have to go through that there's a like a whole prep part of this thing. Like, um, you know, uh, like we'll throw in when we do some of the uh, like Calditas triphasic, we throw in GPP blocks just to make sure that people are keeping their you know base level conditioning high so that they have the ability to recover so that the quality of the movement is better. And I know when uh, we did the heavy eccentrics and we used to do a lot of uh, heavy eccentrics on like the bench press, we do with dumbbells and we do them with squats. Uh, it was always towards the end when everybody was in pretty good shape and it was too early. We just saw fucking people rupture packs and tear shit and do some crazy things. So that was a, uh, that was always interesting. The, um, the one I was going to ask you about is what did the research conclude on uh, power force development using blood flow restricted training? So what we did, uh, we actually did um, a modified uh, Bosco test to look at the effect of acute blood flow restriction on power output. And, as far as I can tell, um, when you look at very short bouts of high intensity power movements, just like jumping or like anything that is explosive, within 30 to 45 seconds, whether you have blow flow restriction on or not, the effect is not that noticeable. So there is, which leads me to believe that there's a way to use BFR in just general power training. And it might lead to more benefit than not uh, in terms of long-term adaptation. I don't know the answer for that yet because we haven't done longitudinal studies yet. But at least I can tell acutely using BFR doesn't compromise muscle function because my concern was if you look at like different methodologies for developing power, like you look at velocity-based training, weightlifting, plyometrics, whatever, uh, you want to make sure that when when athletes are training, they can keep an adequate level of first rate of force development, second peak power output, and third overall peak velocity. If any of those variables starts to drop or decline more than 10, 15%, you might be doing conditioning, but you're not making them more powerful or more explosive. They have to be fresh. They have to be able to explode when they perform uh, lifts or sprints or whatever. And my concern was, okay, if I put on a cuff and I include blood flow to the muscles, like, am I going to impair muscle function to the point that training is not effective anymore? So I got to the point of proving that that's not the case if efforts are very short and short distance. Now, the next step would be to develop a protocol that uses BFR together with uh, plyometrics or like lifting with velocity-based training or weightlifting movements, whatever the case may be, for four, six, eight, 12 weeks 
and see if there's an additional benefit in using BFR uh, to improve whatever metrics we're looking at, like rate of force development, power output, because we all know that it works for hypertrophy, yeah. uh, but hypertrophy doesn't mean strength. Like a bigger muscle can be a bigger muscle, but doesn't mean, doesn't mean that it's going to be a stronger muscle. Like a what bigger muscle you, just theoretically has, of a larger cross-sectional size of a muscle should be able to support more weight. Correct. But, theoretically. But, yeah. Yeah. Theoretically. But when that's not the case, we, uh, we tested the BFR. So, um, when we were back out in California, we're in Texas now. Um, Dr. Sato, the inventor of Katsu, uh, we got plugged in with him and I went and interviewed him and he sent me a bunch of programs like, Hey, these are the programs that they'd use with like the uh, Japanese, um, sprint team for their, uh, for their skaters and skiers. And he, he actually wrote me a bodybuilding program and, uh, he had some crazy thing. Like what, like, wasn't he able to lock out like 1200 pounds on a bench press? Well, I mean, the other Im- impressive thing when I met him, I don't know if you ever met him. He's like 70 years old and the dude's still pr- in pretty phenomenal shape. So that alone Not is just ne- like a good sign up for him. But, uh, he sent me this programming and, uh, it looked like, um, do your, you know, uh, standard training. And then here's like kind of like the circuits that we want to kind of set up. And so we were doing, uh, these like 15, 20 minute circuits using the blood flow restriction. And we used it with thousands of athletes. And the one thing that was universally true is everybody put on muscle. Uh, everybody said that they felt better. I didn't necessarily see the carryover in terms of like one RMs, three RMs and, uh, you know, any of the big basic movements, but people said that they felt, uh, they felt better. Um, they had less joint distress and injuries that they had had tended to heal. So I think that there was like a therapeutic effect by including the blood and then, you know, all the other, uh, you know, growth factors associated with it. But we didn't necessarily see like the world beating like, Hey, this guy, you know, put, you know, five to 10% on all of his lifts. We just didn't see that. But in terms of body composition, everybody looked better, but I also didn't know if the fact that we were doing conditioning circuits at the end, uh, you know, in an occluded state was, you know, just giving people on a gnarly pump and that was resulting in them looking better. But, uh, I mean, we use it. And I think what's really cool is, uh, in terms of rehab, the fact that you can occlude muscles and have people that are, you know, can't load or let's say they're going through joint replacements or, you know, tendon issues or whatnot can still occlude and still get some solid work done uh, without, you know, loading the shit out of the joint. Absolutely. You said a very, very true thing. Like they, they look better. They look buff. They look like lean and ripped. But muscle, muscle size doesn't always equal muscle function. So that hypertrophy can come from many different ways. It can be Good hypertrophy means that you have more contractile proteins in your muscle, but it can also be mostly sarcoplasmatic hypertrophy, where like your muscles are just swollen full of like glycogen and water. So the cross-sectional area is bigger because if you were to cut them, you you find a bigger muscle, you find bigger fibers, but that's not contractile elements that you can use to develop more strength, you know? So you always have to be careful the way hypertrophy is always like it's a delicate topic because it's very easy to see. Like if someone gets bigger, you, you see that it's bigger, it's heavier on the scale, there's more mass, but is that good mass that they can use or is just that way that they can't use? It's always like, a, it's very tricky to get people bigger and stronger and more powerful. In uh, Verkashansky's uh, work and also in Zadaskorsky's work, you know, they were real big into this kind of circumplasic versus, um, myofibular hypertrophy and it's this kind of like one was more of a functional muscle or usable muscle and the other one was more of a, a show kind of you said uh, pumped up with glycogen and and uh you know hydration and and um and they really kind of talked about like different actual you know kind of training rep ranges and volume you know one is more bodybuilding opposed from let's say like uh you know singles doubles triples like an olympic lifter uh 
is it, I mean, I like, as I read it, it was very, if this, then that, but I've kind of seen a little bit of, uh, like almost cross section where I've seen, um, you know, bodybuilders and people that were strong lifted higher rep ranges that would be considered one. And then there was a whole bunch of stuff where people were coming out and like, Oh, this doesn't exist anymore. There's no such thing. Nothing exists in a, in a, in a vacuum. And, you know, if it happens, it's a crossover. So I was hoping for a little definitive stance on this. So the way I look at it, and I try to use hypertrophy is a very controversial topic in general. Period. Like no one has a well, definite. We're actually going to call this. We're, we're just going to put hypertrophy on this podcast because instantly that'll result in like a hypertrophy million hypertrophy controversy <laughs> solved. <laughs> Not Ooh, to the yeah, yeah. solved. Yeah. <laughs> Tune in <laughs> next week. <laughs> I mean, we're going to fight over I, this. Topic. It's it, it's insane when you bring up the word hypertrophy. Like when we were dealing with the CrossFit market, hypertrophy was like the dirtiest word you could throw out there. You know, they'd be like sexual harassment, drugs, hypertrophy, uh, hypertrophy, number one. So, uh, you know, but yet in the bodybuilding realm, hypertrophy is this, you know, like the golden goose. It's the egg. It's, uh, you know, the brass ring that everybody's shooting for. So, like, why is it so controversial? And more importantly, like, how does it happen? And and how can people tap into this? Because at the end of the day, I think everybody wants to carry more muscle. I mean, if you look at the actuary charts, the person that is able to maintain their lean muscle mass the longest lives the longest. So we know there's a direct relationship between lean body mass and and longevity and strength and being able to live your best life. But it seems pretty interesting, or at least from our point of view, it seems pretty interesting. But yeah, man, it's debated all day on the interwebs. Um, Let me try to give you my answer, and I hope it's clear enough. Uh, It's not necessarily what I 100% embrace and believe, but what science is showing us. Uh, There seems to be... uh, three factors that contribute to uh, muscle growth and hypertrophy. Um, well, muscle damage, which means inflammation, uh, ten- mechanical tension or mechanotransduction, which is an independent contributor to muscle hypertrophy, and hypoxia or metabolic damage. And if you look at these three factors, so muscle damage is just how much tension the sarcomere creates from the inside out, and how much damage and disarray you can create in the sarcomere. So you increase muscle damage if you train at an optimal load that allows enough time under tension. And that optimal load is anywhere between 70 and 90% of one max. So somewhat heavier than what a normal bodybuilding routine would call for. Uh, on the other end, though, if you look at um, uh, just sheer tension and how much tension you uh, impose over your sarcomeres, that has to do with the time under tension during the eccentric. So you want to stretch that time under, under tension when you're lowering the weight. And if you put the two things together, if you want to do enough, enough time under tension for your muscles to grow, and you want to stretch the eccentric to the point that you can handle, you're probably not going to be able to work at 90% of your one max. You're going to be closer to like 70 to 80. And then you throw in hypoxia or metabolic damage. If you want to maximize hypoxia and metabolic damage, you have to shorten rest periods. And if you shorten the rest periods, you can lift very heavy. Uh, you probably have to lower the weight from set to set. So that brings down the spectrum of loading even further down towards 60. So if you're looking at the ideal combination for muscle hypertrophy to occur at its best, you're probably looking at 60 to 70% of water max, four way repetitions, uh, 40 to 60 seconds of time under tension per set, and anywhere between 30 and 60 seconds rest in between sets. And that's much, in my opinion, at least, much closer to what a bodybuilder would do than a real athlete. Because if you look at, real, 
bodybuilders are athletes too, but like <laughs> a more like competitive eh, type of athlete. I don't know, man. We went to the Mr. Olympia and uh, oh my God. Uh, uh, like uh, the one thing that was universally true was everybody there looked really hungry that was competing. I remember I was standing <laughs> next to uh guy was uh, Nick uh like this like the like the, he, he finished top five. He was uh in the Olympia. We were standing next to him. First of all, he was about five four. And all I could think of is this dude looks really hungry and really thirsty. <laughs> I don't know how athletic that is, but man, like those I would if, if, hate to sit next to that guy on a plane. If uh <laughs> if you could like if if there was a category for athlete that involves suffering, I gotta go with bodybuilding. I agree. and probably Navy SEALs. I mean, I grew up watching uh, Ronnie Coleman's YouTube, so like that was very motivational, but definitely not good uh, reference points for athletics, at least. <laughs> yeah, Ronnie was enormous. I mean, he, oh, he's yeah. still the biggest dude I've ever seen. Yeah. I, um, uh, so he he had a deal uh, years ago, probably this has got to be 10, 15 years ago, where uh, you could actually book a deal where you went and stayed with him for the weekend, and he cooked you pancakes at his house. Where was Power at the Radio? <laughs> Uh, I am so depressed. I remember, um, uh, God, I can't remember her name. Her name was Kimmy. She was married to uh, Adrian Bosman when, um, you know, uh, of CrossFit fame. And so Kimmy came down and used to hang out with us. And she was like obsessed with Ronnie. And she was like, check this out. We could go on pancakes at his house. <laughs> and I remember being like, we got to do this. And we never did it. We should have fucking gone. How about a great story? That'd be like, I ever tell you about the time I had pancakes at Ronnie Coleman's house? Fuck. God damn it. Man. Now I cook Ronnie Coleman pancakes at my house. All right. But uh, if, if you think about bodybuilding, I mean, the one thing that bodybuilders have figured out is more importantly, like the sport of hypertrophy. I mean, there's yep. probably That's no other set of athletes on the planet. And if you look at how they train, uh, you know, but what's wild is that um, uh, like there's no universal like agreement on training style. You have a guy like Dorian Yates where it was, you know, heavy, you know, uh, one, two sets to failure. I mean, he really understood mechanical tension and more importantly, mechanical failure better than anybody. You know, Mike Metzer was in that category. You know, we had Jake uh, Cutler on the podcast who uh, claimed that his entire training was uh, four sets of 12 and he never really trained very heavy. And it was always, you know, 60, 70% real short rest periods hammered through his workout. And uh, he's like, you know, I don't really have any injuries to this day because I don't think I ever handled the heavy poundages. You know, his whole thing was like, could I consume enough calories to be in that good a shape? Which, uh, you know, you never hear Dorian Yates really talk about diet. Like, I mean, I, I've, I've heard him talk about diet, but whatever you ask him, like uh, Jay's major thing about his physique and what he was able to do had to do. I mean, if you hear him talk, he's, he's uh, yeah, the training was important. It was the diet piece. It was the rest. It was the recovery. You know, Dorian, on the other hand, is like, you know, I would fight wars in the gym. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I ate food, too. But. So it's really interesting <laughs> where we get into this, where there really isn't anything universally agreed upon. And it's really finding what works for each individual. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's also like the drug question, which I, I still believe to this day that there's certain individuals that maybe just have more receptor sites that just react more favorably to the drugs than other people. And I remember uh, Zhang is telling me that years ago that um, uh, when Arnold and all those guys were trained down at Gold's Gym, like they all had access to the same drugs. They all, everybody took the exact same. Arnold just looked better than everybody else with the same amounts. So they, uh, his thing was, uh, or George's idea was that certain people just react differently and that there's different receptor sites and different metabolic pathways. And some people react really favorably to it. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting if you talk to those pro bodybuilders and whoever knows if they're being honest, 
but the the top guys when they start talking about their drug stuff like isn't as gnarly as the dude at the local show it's just the fact that they maybe have more genetic potential that's able to be maximized when you look at hypertrophy like we just briefly touch upon the main elements in training and we're just describing barely physiology that you have to consider genetics, like our individual response to training and epigenetic. What's their environment, how, they're, how they grow up, like what kind of like nutritional like habits they have and so far and so forth. There's so much that goes into it. It's like almost impossible to predict. Like if you do this, you're going to grow, you're going to compete at Mr. Olympia. Like even with everything else being the same, same training program, same diet, same drugs, the outcome is still far from being predictable. When it comes to hypertrophy, when it comes to strength training, it's a bit more of a science, but hypertrophy is, a, is definitely not that black and white type of approach. Uh, uh, Tom Ankladon, who, who's a good friend of ours out in Arizona, PhD, uh, he's been on the podcast n- a number of times, has said to me along like for years that uh, he does a, a, a ton of t- uh, blood work and um, especially uh, like you know, 20, 30 years of micronutrient testing. And his contention is that the nutrient density of our present food source is so depleted. He goes, every year I test, people are more and more micronutrient deficient. He said, 100 years ago, he goes, you could have eaten the same diet and the amount of nutrients in the food would have resulted in like superhumans compared to what we know now within training. And everybody looks back at like these old time strongmen. And he's like, his contention is that the, the, the nutrient density of the food was so much greater uh, we, we, we weren't uh, battling BPAs and all these environmental toxins that he thinks are just fucking killing the immune system and really just, you know, uh, fucking up everybody's gut and ability to uh, absorb uh, nutrients. So, I mean, even in the last 30 years, he's like, I'm telling you, every year when I look at blood work and we start looking at nutrient density and more importantly, the nutrient deficiencies in the people, he goes, it just keeps improving, you know, climbing every year. Yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, just to wrap up and closing on the hypertrophy uh, war and the end of it, when we describe, and that's something that comes out in the Soviet manuals a lot, so I find it interesting. I found it very interesting too, is that when you look at um, the way we understand training for hypertrophy, works great, and it can actually make you stronger because you're developing more muscle mass, and if you train correctly, you're also going to get stronger. However, they have this, uh, I don't know, I, I honestly don't even know how to translate that in English correctly, but they have this like undergoing jokes in different books and articles and studies published in the Soviet Union and Northern Europe, like Finland, uh, all those countries. Um, and like even Akin and Komi used it, like researchers that we're all familiar with nowadays. Uh, I, I guess the best way to uh, express that is called the theory of the two sprinters, which I know it doesn't sound a lot, but... The way they, they explain it, and I witnessed it myself on a presentation with Dr. Akinen, like back maybe 15 years ago. Um, they look, they, let's assume that like your performance is pushing a very heavy box, like a very heavy box, 100 kilos, 200 kilograms, or whatever. And you have two sprinters attached to it. One pulls in one direction, one pulls in the other direction. One sprinter is your type one muscle fiber, one sprinter is your type two muscle fiber. When you do, you know that if you want to um, move that box faster, you would have your type two muscle fibers to overpower type one muscle fiber. So the old block can move faster towards one direction. But if you do too much hypertrophy work, and especially what they're very picky with is not the type of work that you do, 
is the volume of work that you do. When you do very high volume training, which bodybuilders tend to do, the fatigue that you build up during training and the amount of like metabolic stress that you build up during training, even if you train heavy and you train more like a power lifter than a bodybuilder, your type one muscle fiber will grow as well. And if the sprinter gets heavier, just as heavy as the type two muscle fibers are, the net force and velocity you can generate, it, the amount of inertia that you have to overcome is much bigger because now that sprinter pulls lower, but it's bigger and heavier. So the net resultant is different. And that's why they always say, like, when you look at hypertrophy, you, know, you have to think that it's not just your type two muscle fibers that are growing, it's your type one muscle fibers that are growing as well. And the more you grow them, the more inertia your muscle will have to overcome to move faster. And if he can move as fast, the overall rate of force development will be compromised and your performance on the field of play will change because we know, and I think that's pretty much uh, agreed upon by anyone, like strength is extremely important for sport and it makes a difference between low-level athletes and elite-level athletes, but stronger athletes are not necessarily better athletes. For you to be a better athlete, you have to be stronger, but also more powerful, uh, more explosive, have greater rate of force development, greater speed and so on and so forth. So always be, my, my, my take on message is like, always be very careful programming too much hypertrophy work in athletics because it can become counterproductive. The one thing that we observed too, and this was um, uh, something that kind of, I guess was real eye-opening for me, especially in a, in a sport like playing football where it's, you know, three to five seconds, 100% max intensity followed by anywhere from, you know, 45 to 90 seconds of rest. And then you, you know, you're doing this in sets. And so it's based upon this like max effort and rest. What we found was that too much circuit training or too much uh, like too much volume, like, hey, I'm going to train for, you know, 15 minute, 20 minute circuits. And I remember this very clearly in super training. They talk about a conversion of fast twitch fibers to slow twitch fibers to be able to handle more sustained submaximal loads. Cyclical as well. They drop like for athletes avoiding cyclical monotonous exercises for that. Also, the, the transition for muscle fibers. Yeah. So they, they were really always talking about like you have to you know train in such a way that safeguards those type one, those fast twitch muscle fibers. If that's what you're going to need to be successful in your sport and don't get sucked into this like, you know, 30 minutes of circuit training because now you get this kind of conversion from slow twitch to fat or from fast twitch to slow twitch. And uh, that was very, very apparent because um, I remember with us doing metabolic conditioning cycles and just doing a bunch of conditioning stuff. And at the end of the day, that would almost have to taper off for more max effort speed and then finding other ways to hit our conditioning. Yeah, it always comes down to uh, metabolic stress, like your muscle fibers. So you, you, whatever, whatever muscle fiber you look at, whether that is type one or type two, uh, you're born with that fiber connected with one neuron and that neuron is not going to change unless you artificially change innervation in your muscle. So the fast, the, the speed at which your muscle can twitch and contract depends on the motor neuron. What changes is the meta metabolic profile of those fibers. And if you keep training for some type of endurance, which means that the volume is bigger, you're going to have that transition from type two to type one, which is inevitable uh, by increasing volume. And that can compromise performance. I agree. What do we want to get into next? Ah, uh, man, I'd love to get into like rate of force development and ways that, that you're <laughs> finding. I mean, because we've done high, hypertrophy. So the next thing is rate of force development, which to me is really the hallmark for power and more importantly, athletic performance. If you can take an athlete, like you said, like the analogy, like you, I, I, I thought the analogy of, uh, of of the box and then, you know, the the two sprinters trying to pull away was amazing. I always think about it like almost like bullets. 
right? You have like a sleeker bullet that can travel faster with less powder coming out of a gun. And when you start getting into these bigger bullets, yeah, they have more energy, but not over a longer distance. But then you have to pack more powder in them to get them to move the, you know, the same muzzle velocity to be able to gain because it'll have to overcome, you know, gravity and inertia and other factors. So I always think about like, or I'd like to get into a little bit of the research you've been doing on rate of force development and more importantly, uh, techniques for developing it. Absolutely. Uh, I think, and I was talking about this with uh, Dr. Comfort at the NSCA conference. Uh, when we, when you look at, so there are three topics are somehow always connected. It's always like strength, rate of force development and power. And you're looking at just different combination of these three things. Um, the underlying philosophy is always there that if you look at, or if, if you wanted to look at muscle mechanics and you look at like heels model, uh, the more force you ask your muscle to generate, the short, the, the slower the velocity would be and vice versa. Uh, and that has brought over the years um, a large number of practitioners to um, misunderstanding this original research to, to always trade off between, find the perfect combination between load and velocity to generate power. Like they either go very, very light uh, weight and they move it very, very fast, or they go a bit heavier and they move it very, very slow. However, um, if you look at the research, um, especially if you look at the original research from Archibald Vivian Hill back in like 1923 to 1932, um, what he's describing is the force and the velocity at which your sarcomere shortens. So your sarcomere will shorten faster if you put less load on it and vice versa. But when you look at the velocity of movement, which is where rate of force development really matters, in biomechanics, force equals mass, mass time acceleration. So if you want to have more acceleration, which means more top velocity, you need to apply more force. If you don't apply more force, all the power that you generate is going nowhere. So when you train for rate of force development and you train for power development, you, you always have to look at that compromise between force and velocity, but you always have to keep in mind that you need to hit at least a minimum amount of weight for you to apply the necessary force to be more explosive. And that's where velocity-based training really comes into play. Like instead of looking at or guessing what velocity you're moving at, you're going to pick a load that is going to be the heaviest possible for you to train at a certain velocity and you're just going to try, you're going to keep moving that way until you move it faster. And when you move it faster, the weight is going to get heavier. So ultimately, when you want to develop power, even, even when you want to develop or maximize rate of force development, you still can't give up on loading. The, the load, the amount of overload you place on the system is still absolutely important. Uh, if you look at the way, and I'm big time not an expert on velocity-based training. There are many, many people that are more skilled than me in velocity-based training. But I've learned in my way from... Uh, Dr. Camelo Bosco's original work uh, is the, the one that actually kind of like pioneer the load velocity continuum for velocity-based training. Like it, the way he applied it, he never played around with like different velocity and different loads. He picked either a very heavy load and he kept it there until the athlete was moving it faster or it, it, when, when the, the speed got to a certain level, which was usually 1.2, 1.3 meter per second, it just increased the load and increased the load and increased the load. So that load and velocity were going up at the same time. It didn't change like 
30% of water max for a block and then 70% of water max for another block. It was always the heaviest way possible that could be moved at a certain velocity. That velocity was usually starting at 0.5, 0.6 meter per second, all the way up to one, 1.2 meters per second. And that's the way it developed some of the best, for instance, like shot pullers or discus throwers in, in Europe back in the 80s and 90s. So I think when we look at rate of force development or developing power in general, it's not just about like strength is important because it's the foundation of everything you do when it comes to like explosive movement. It's true. It is the foundation, but you need to carry on that loading component in your training uh, day in and day out consistently. When you start going too light, and I see a lot of practitioners doing that because uh, in the name of velocity-based training, if you want to move away at 1.2 meters per second, they have to go all the way back down to like 30, 40% of water max. There might be a time and place for that too, I'm, I'm sure. But when you look at improving just proportion in general and the amount of force an athlete can generate in the shortest amount of time possible to move faster in space, that load needs to be present. Because again, force equals mass time acceleration. So if you want to move faster, you need to move more weight and you need to move it faster. Well, I mean, where does strength play into this? I mean, well, I mean, two things. Uh, what we found was um, intent is something that's not discussed enough. Like actually teaching an athlete like the like the the intent of moving fast and how to move fast. Like that was the the, the whole. Whenever I read anything about rate of force development, like I always thought that there should be like a, a block of training where you start lighter and then you progress and actually focus on the individual's intent to move fast. Um, it's something I'm dealing with my daughter, my daughter's 10 and she's a swimmer. And, uh, like this idea of intent is like completely escapes her. And she's like, so wait a minute, like diving off the blocks. If I want to move, if I want to push harder and go faster, I can, I'm like 100%. If your intent is to move as fast as possible, you have to understand. And like that connection between intent and your body is like this really interesting piece. And so we're going through all these different practices on trying to like gain intent and uh, I just keep striking out. And so yesterday she's like, well, what about like if, uh, is there, is there uh, like, she goes, hey, can I, is there something in the weight room I can do to, to deal with this intent? And I had this kind of epiphany moment that I wonder if there's a relationship between intent and strength. Like is as you get stronger and you're in, uh, is intent something that's taught? And more importantly, like how do we teach that? Because I'm, I'm selfishly. Um, but then also uh, with rate of force development, like once the athlete understands the intent, uh, isn't the idea that you have to continually progress the implements or the weights or the percentages as they grow in terms of strength? Because you're not necessarily training these in a in a vacuum. They have to be in a concurrent training model. So I assume the athlete's getting stronger, also doing rate of force power development. And there's kind of a symbiotic uh, deal between one and the other. Well, you opened the door for a conversation that can take me for hours now. Well, uh, that's, that's good. I, uh, I, right. I, I like I like rabbit holes. But I mean, uh, you, you know, I mean, this is stuff. Uh, what's so cool about Power Athlete and what we do is um, uh, we write programs for thousands of athletes. And the way it's set up through Train Heroic, I can collect data on all of these athletes. And they follow uh, a very, you know, like if I explained to you the template, you'd be like, oh, that's and, you know, like it's very easy for me to explain the template and really the hierarchy of programs and, you know, the archetype for each program follows certain different training models. But the, you know, so that's what we do. Uh, but I'm fucking don't want to talk. So you go. I beg you, please stop me if I go too long, because I can literally go for hours here. But um, if uh, I, I give my perspective on things, the way I approach this topic, I'm sure it's different for everyone. 
but the way I was brought up looking at strength training was all a question of like, move more weight, move heavier things. Who cares if you move them slow, just lift the bar up and be done with that. However, <clears throat> starting in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties, uh, something slightly different, some, something happened in the world of powerlifting and that changed and that carry over to uh, athletics as well. Uh, Fred Atfield, uh, uh, made very made a big effort to make people aware of compensatory acceleration training or CAT, which is you you can train. That's what people tend to misunderstand. You still can train very heavy, and you still can train as a power lifter. You can still eat 80, 85, 90% of your water max. The body's probably going to move slow. So your external velocity is not going to look that fast. The movement is going to be slow and grindy. But if you put the intent of moving that bar at the highest velocity you can possibly generate on the way up, your adaptation is going to get better, which means that over time, you're going to get much stronger than what you would other, otherwise be if you just applied that crazy amount of force at the bottom of the movement, and then you just free ride all the way to the top. And that's just basic biomechanics. And from biomechanics, you can prove that just by putting an EMG on the quadricep muscle or the glute muscle in a squat, you realize that they turn on a lot at the bottom of the squat, and then they slowly turn off as the movement progresses because mechanical advantage improves. So there are studies out there. I'm thinking about like Jones 1999 or other studies in the early 2000s where they took two groups of American football players, so well-trained individuals, and they trained them. Uh, that was just for upper body strength. So same volume, same intensity, same frequency, same identical training load. The only difference was one group was not asked to move at a certain velocity. They just let them lift. The other group was coached in a way that they tried to get them to move the bar as fast as possible as they possibly could on the way up. So the concentric portion of the movement. And again, you're not measuring the velocity. You don't care how far, how fast that bar is moving. What you care about is the intent of moving that bar fast. And one day, what they what they found after I think it was like either six or eight weeks of training, is that. Both groups, they equally got stronger. So their one max improved pretty much by the same amount. However, when they test them in a bench throw, so a more ballistic movements, the group that trained with no compensatory acceleration training only slightly changed their performance in the bench throw. The other group improved by more than 30% in the bench throw. And when they even broke it down between eccentric, coupling time, and concentric, their coupling time between eccentric and concentric decreased by a lot which means that overall the rate of force development improved just by trying to move those weight faster. And there's another bunch of research done on a very cool topic, which unfortunately is not very popular in strength and conditioning, but it is in rehab, which is known as maximum intended concentric velocity. So there are different protocols that you can apply even in addition, where like by simply using intended high velocity, your level of adaptation will cover the entire spectrum from strength to power and rate of force development. And again, I wanna I want to repeat that one more time. The velocity at which you move the bar doesn't matter. If you're lifting 85% of your water max, if you're lifting 90% of your water max, inevitably your bar will move slow. But if you try to move the bar as fast as you possibly can through the entire range of motion, somehow you're still gonna get more benefit out of it. If you want to even like, Bring it to the next level, the, you can throw in like an accelerometer and use velocity-based training, 
or you can put in bands and chains, which is known as accommodative resistance training, and that forces you even more to apply that constant velocity or increasing velocity on the way up and maximize rotation. And if you look at the majority of uh, metalysis published over the last five to six years, um, and I'm a big fan of chains and bands because I grew up with Louis Simmons. I, I used to love Louis Simmons at West Barbell. So I, I, I've done a lot of uh, band work and chain work. But then if you were to compare results with like accommodative resistance training and traditional powerlifting training, when you look at sheer strength, there's no difference. You, you, you get stronger as long as you move big weights. But when you look at power, training with chains and bands does improve your power reduce development. So it is more athletic than traditional powerlifting type training. And that to, to close the circle now, everything goes back to wanting to move that bar or being forced to move that bar as fast as you possibly can on the way up. Because athletes cannot be able to perceive whether or not they're moving fast, but the moment you put an elastic band on the bar, and if they don't move faster, the, body is gonna, the band is going to push them down. They need to learn how to move faster. And if on top of that, you provide the uh, augmented feedback with velocity-based training just by putting an iPad in front of them and having them see what velocity they're moving at, well, you're combining motor learning, you're combining uh, physical development in just one, it's the perfect combination, I think. Mm. Feedback goes a long way. I was thinking for Jamie, what about weighted box jumps? Uh, dude, I, I think I think the problem is she's just super skinny and she needs body awareness. So that inter and intermuscular coordination issue. Like I think uh, she doesn't know how to, she's so young she hasn't wired up yet. So I think like even though she might intend to move fast, she doesn't know how to make her body move fast. And the one thing that we found in just beginners with just basic barbell movements is that inter and intermuscular coordination and just almost that like, uh, like what's the word, like uh, arranging uh, of the body. And we're now all of a sudden, like as strength improves, like that coordination effect, um, you know, becomes so important for her in terms of like, okay, now I'm in this position, you know, because uh, if you look at the hip angle, they're in kind of a staggered stance the hip angle, they're bent at the waist. I mean, if she's standing up, it's, you know, maybe 75 degrees and then they bend over and then, then they have to almost flare and push off. Like I'm looking at it, like, what if she just gets stronger, uh, with just basic, like a basic barbell movement and then just teach her a little bit of plyometrics. I mean, it should go a long way. I mean, I think where people fuck up, um, you know, we get emails about this all the time, especially with kids, like the minimal dose for kids is like the maximal effect. Like if you could just get them to like do basic movements under load one or two days a week, uh, you know, whereas, you know, like I saw a question the other day, some 20 year old kid who's never lifted weights jumps into something like Jack Street. He's like, I feel like this is a little advanced. 100%. Like the, the reason that you're a beginner is because the simplistic principles and the basics are, are still very, very powerful. Um, you'll get a laugh out of this. Uh, the old power lifter that trained me when I started, when I was with about 14 years old, uh, was buddies with Fred Hatfield. And he used to talk about compensatory acceleration and the idea that uh, we want to try to break the weights and his mechanical advantage improves, so does speed. So like when we would bench, uh, you know, bringing the weight up and then trying to literally break the bar in half or trying to punch your hands through, you know, two inches so that when you go to punch somebody in football, you're not punching to their chest, you're actually trying to punch through them. Or the idea of, uh, you know, coming out of the bottom and trying to vertical jump the weight out of, the, you know, through the roof. And so he used to always talk about, uh, you know, like don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful, be violent, 
try to break those motherfuckers. And if you can break them, we'll go get new ones. And uh, <laughs> I think that training style when I was when I was young, I've since slowed down a little bit. But when I was young, when I started lifting weights or when I went to go train, people would be like, dude, you need to you're going to hurt yourself. And I remember thinking, like, don't be slow and careful, be violent. And uh, I think that ended up translating into, you know, uh, 10 years in the NFL. But it was interesting when I got onto this coaching side, uh, we were running a bunch of training programs and uh, we, we went into this really interesting train, like a testing model. And I got all these results back and they were super confusing. Like I, like I couldn't see any like common threads in them. And uh, so I started watching the videos and the thing that was universally true was that everybody was really slow and careful. And we ended, I ended up reaching out to Fred Hatfield and we had a series of podcasts with him, especially the idea of like, you know, how he was able to generate force and that idea of intent. And then basically started programming that into all of our programs and talking about mechanical advantage increases, so to speed and compensatory acceleration, even figuring out like different percentages to try to teach people intent, more importantly, compensatory acceleration training. And I, I think that's been uh, one of those things that is still so groundbreaking today, but yet people forget about it. And when I talk about it, like they, what are you talking about? What's his cat stuff? And, uh, you know, the guys over at, um, um, you know, gas station ready, like, the, you know, uh, Josh Bryant, who we met, who was, uh, taught with Fred Hatfield, mm-hmm. you know, he still really beats ISAA. the war drum. Yeah. So- he still beats the war drum. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's something that nobody is really talking about that idea of intent and trying to break those motherfucking weights. I think it's almost universally true that if you learn how to train faster, you're eventually going to get stronger no matter what, when you're working with more like older, older uh, athletes, I would just be um, a little bit more um, forgiven in kids or younger athletes, just because speed to some extent has a lot to do with proprioception. So how well you can feel your body moving in space and when you're going through early puberty and your body's growing so much and your levers are changing so much, and one day uh, your leg is like this short and the following day you're super, super tall because you're growing, that proprioception like is cued. And maybe they, they, they want to move faster. They just, they're not well in tune with their bodies yet. Well, But, but then uh, after they're eating, Like, does it matter? I mean, like as long as the intent is there, does it really matter correct. how fast they're moving? as long as they're intending to move fast. Yeah. Communicate the intent that whether or not they're able to move faster or be super coordinated when they do it, just give them a little bit of like grace and freedom because they're still growing, but sure. communicating the intent of moving faster 1000%. What, um, in, uh, I can't remember if it was the Russian training manuals or Berkashansky's work, but there was some pretty detailed writing that they, they uh, I, I ended up calling it the priming the pump where they had kids, like huge cross-sections of kids that they were putting in different athletic strength training programs pre-puberty, other kids they didn't. And then once they hit puberty, they were putting them into like a general training program. And they noticed that the kids that had done strength training or something that was more physically demanding before puberty gained strength and muscle at a much greater rate than the kids that didn't. And uh, I can't remember if it was Berkashansky or, or, or it, it, it might even have been... Um, um, Dr. Romanoff might have talked about it as well in one of his talks, uh, that idea of priming the pump, um, you know, and that's kind of why, like for my kids, like, uh, you know, like my daughter swims, which I love just because the, the amount of like metabolic distress and conditioning that they do in the water is so high that like the metabolic pathways, I mean, you could never equate that out of the water. And so I remember years ago, uh, Dave Spitz and I noticed 
that girls that had swam at a high level uh, early on tended to gain muscle much at a much greater rate later on. And I mean, we've seen like Colleen Fauch and some of these other girls that were high level mm-hmm. swimmers once they travel over, start lifting weights. China, China Cho, another one, uh, but end up putting on a ton of muscle. So that was why. And then, you know, just the fact that I love the fact that she can get out there and I mean, she can do it every day and they, they fucking go hard on those kids like intervals and they swim a ton. So, but uh, have you seen anything like that or any research associated with, uh, with that priming of the pump? Yeah. A lot of it came from uh, uh, Carmelo Bosco in Italy too. He did a lot of work with uh, the national track and field team, uh, developing athletes all the way from the age of six to the age of like 21, 22. And I remember him always being uh, debating whether or not this priming effect was physiological, like your muscles are just more responsive to training after you hit puberty or simply by teaching them good lifting mechanics and good training etiquettes and train and teaching them how to be intense, intense when they train, if that just exponentially increased the response after they hit puberty, like it was always questioning whether or not it was a physiological thing or just like a mother learning type of situation where like you just prepare that as soon as they hit puberty, they can already train at that level of intensity that they need to grow. So they're going to grow faster and get stronger. Um, in my opinion, probably is a combination of both. Uh, but yes, it's fascinating. Uh, youth training is a very fascinating topic. Yeah, no, it's uh, the one thing which has been really cool about, you know, all these advances in technology, especially like YouTube and whatnot. You'll see like clips of these kids, like little kids, like seven, eight, nine years old playing football. And there's one kid who's just like remarkably different than all the others. And, uh, you know, and they're, you know, they'll interview the dad and like, you know, the dad played professional sports or maybe played at a high level and the kid's just super focused. I always uh, love whenever, like, you know, like, you know, kind of forget about it. And then I'm watching uh, the playoff game with Joe Burrow and they were showing a bunch of his high school and junior high and like, you know, when he started playing football in his clips and how good he was. And they were like, you know, even when this kid stepped out, even at this young age, we knew that he was going to be special. I don't know his story, but I'm in. Well, he's he's, awesome. uh, Yeah, no, I mean, a young kid in Ohio, they went and interviewed his, uh, his high school coach. Um, who was like, you know, his football knowledge to the point where they were drawing up plays in the dirt during the game. And he's like, coach, I think this will win. And he's like, it was it was like having an offensive coordinator who was like 16, 17 years old on the field who understood it. And uh, even they talked, uh, what's the, what was the, the, the coach at Louisiana? Coach O? Yeah, Coach O said that when he showed up, he's like, he just wanted to talk about football and go eat some crawfish. That was it. He just wanted to, he just wanted to wrap football and eat some food. Like didn't want to go out and drink or party or anything. Just let's talk about football and let's go eat some crawfish. He's a big cigar guy. Uh, I, you know what? I'm a fan. But I I think what's what's cool today is that now we get to see this stuff and we get to almost tag these kids and then get an opportunity to see how they progress. But I definitely, um, I almost wonder, like, what's the balance on that? Like, uh, you know, you have kids that I played with who were high-level performers that end up burning out when they're 14, 15 and never want to play sports again. And then you have other kids who are just taken to it. Or like for me, um, I was kind of a late bloomer. Like I didn't start playing football until I got to high school. And then, you know, I grew from six foot to six four in high school and grew another two inches in college. So when I left college, I was six six. So, I mean, there was that kind of late bloomer, like J.J. Watt late bloomer effect, whereas some people have success early. Uh, I think you see both sides of this. And the one thing that's universally true, what he said is nobody fucking knows. You can yeah. give somebody who have the, you know, the greatest genetics, greatest training, all the opportunity in the world. And if they don't have that little thing inside them to be, you know, to be great, uh, it's impossible to teach it in the weight room and anywhere else. 
I think you said a very important thing, like the little thing inside them. Uh, ultimately, I think it's a question of, you can look at all the physiology of it. You can look at all the studies, blood works, whatever you want. But I think what really makes a difference for a youth athlete to either stick with sport, grow and get better or quit is whether or not they're intrinsically motivated to play sport and they just enjoy what they do and they want to do it better or they're forced by their parents to perform in sport and compete in sports, which is intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. They just want to please them. If they enjoy what they do, chances are they're going to stick around for a while, for a long time and they're going to get much better at the sport or their sports if they want to play more than one. Uh, if they have to do that, but they don't find pleasure in doing that, I think uh, their career starts off in the worst possible condition already. Like, uh, I think it's better for them to do less in terms of overall volume do more in terms of activities, type of activities, but do everything because they enjoy doing it. Uh, if they have to be forced, I, I think the whole purpose of like embracing a career in sport like loses its meaning, you know? Mm-hmm. Did you find that balance of kids that parents wanted to be there and kids that wanted to be there in racing growing up? <laughs> a lot, a lot of them. I remember I remember my dad uh, used to stay in the paddock just looking people getting ready for, for a race. And he always used to tell me, you, you'll notice the kids that are going to win or they're going to do well, because while the other kids are getting all geared up, putting their gears on, taking their time, look all pretty, talk to their parents, the other kids already have their helmet on and in the racing car, ready to go. Like they're there because they want to be there. They want to, they enjoy what they do. And they might start at the back of the grid. If they love what they're doing, they're going to find a way to win. And I found that in sports too, like, Sometimes you find, and I, I, I was blessed to work with a lot of like youth athletes in the last five, six years. You find that there are kids out there which might not have the financial resources that other kids have. They might not have enough money to pay for private coaching. They might not have enough money to join a gym, but they have motivation enough to push them through and become great athletes. Like, I think it's all a question of being motivated. So how do we train that? How do we change that or train no, that? How do we train it? I mean, it's... Uh... The, the one thing I, I, I noticed um, is that certain people don't like to lose. I know for me, I don't, I don't like to lose. And uh, whereas, like for me, that was important because it drove me to train. It kind of pushed me in terms of this like intrinsic motivation of like somebody was out there working harder than me. I'm going to go out and because I, I, I don't want to lose. Whereas uh, for me as a boy, that was different. Whereas I have twins. And, uh, my girls are more based on like finding something that they enjoy and something they're good at. So, uh, that's like important. Like they want to feel like they're good at something. And I try to explain it to them that nobody's good at anything like, you know, time and pressure. I mean, I try to give them the Shawshank redemption analogies of like, you know, uh, geology is just a study of time and pressure. I mean, that's performance, time and pressure, right? Like how much opportunity do you have? How long you've been doing it? How long you've been focused on it? Whereas they think, like there should just be sports that I'm just naturally good at and I should gravitate towards those. And uh, I remember being like, you should try to find those. And uh, that's been like an interesting piece in, uh, you know, cause I grew up with all brothers and uh, all, you know, all cousins and we didn't really know any girls when we were growing up. Um, so it's pretty interesting having daughters, like, like the difference in mindset. Whereas I think a lot of boys want to succeed in spite, whereas girls are more um, like motivationally based, like they want to be successful to please a coach or to do something. Whereas I was more about just trying to prove the motherfucker wrong. So uh, there's a huge difference in, in female male athletes. Um, in terms of that piece, like on the physiology side, um, you know, a lot of this training stuff, when we look at 
uh, a lot of the studies and whether it be compensatory acceleration or power rate of force, all that is, uh, is done on male subjects. What about some female specific things and some things that, uh, you know, with female only studies that we've seen and, you know, cause we can't train women the same way we train men in terms of like, you know, we know that women can handle a higher percentage of one around for more reps. And there's some different things that we have to take into account. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, that's a very good point. The majority of studies that we always base our assumptions on are, have been done on predominantly male, male subjects. And when we're lucky, uh, high level athletes, when we're not just recreational athletes or active people, uh, but we need to keep in consideration that there is uh, a set of physiological differences between men and women, which if you look at the sheer numbers, if you look at just how strong can a man become and how strong can a woman become, uh, that difference is not that big as we expect it to be, because once you start taking consideration, not just body weight, but lean body mass, pound per pound, women are almost just as strong as men are. And that difference is there, which means that the tissue uh, tissues adapt just as well as men, if not better. Uh, the difference is just female have far less testosterone than male to begin with, like a tenth of it. So their adaptation is somewhat going to suffer from it. Um, what we can do, knowing that, at least that's my approach, knowing that to begin with, testosterone is absolutely important in any type of activity that involves either strength or power. Uh, it's important because it makes your CNS work better and faster and is as a per, it's said like as a permissive role toward hypertrophy. So if you have more testosterone in your bloodstream, you have more of an anabolic environment overall. So you're going to grow more in response to training. And if you grow more, your muscles are going to be larger. If you train well, your muscles are also going to be stronger. So women have less of that. And we know that by default because of physiology. And we know that uh, training on and off itself, especially resistant training, will change acutely and chronically the way your body handles hormones. In particular, the more volume you do, the more uh, frequency you have in training, the more your cortisol will spike. And if cortisol spike, testosterone and cortisol are no more in that ideal ratio for you to be able to recover from training. You're going to be, uh, your, your recovery will be compromised. So if you already know that women start with lower testosterone, but their response in terms of cortisol is very similar to, to men, definitely you want to find a way to uh, adjust volume and frequency to make sure that you're not hindering their ability to recover and adapt. I think that, again, that's my, my personal opinion. It's not backed up by science, at least that I know of. But I've worked quite a bit with a female in rugby too, which is a predominantly strength-based type of sport. And I found the best results just by maybe increasing the volume, like you said, or the intensity within the sessions if they can handle it. But overall, doing less sessions and less volume compared to men. Uh, the was the same exercise, exercise selection, very similar. The way they train doesn't really change much, just giving them more time to rest and recover so that their hormones can be leveled in a way that is more conducive to like positive adaptation rather than overtraining. I think it's um, another thing that I've experienced, which is like one of the soft skills in training that is not quite tangible, but it's there. Like um, if you can't communicate well when you're working with um, female athletes, they will give you 1,000% of their effort as much as they possibly can. Whereas men tend to get distracted, and I'm guilty of that just as much, tend to be like sidetracked by other goals, whereas female can be more like focused and oriented and like goal-oriented. 
So their intensity can be quite higher than men of the same age and similar background. So overall, knowing that intensity is going to be higher and they, to begin with, they start with less testosterone, just keep all training variables pretty much the same, just decrease volume per session and volume per uh, microcycle, which pretty much comes down to training frequency. Uh, I remember years ago when we were out at Westside, um, I remember uh, talking to Louis Simmons about uh, Prolipin's table and, you know, like, you know, like the rep range and it was, uh, you know, over 90%, somewhere between four and 10 reps. They talked about over a, um, like a training session. And I asked him like, Hey, like, um, cause when, when I was training with him, he had me doing like seven, eight, nine, ten reps. And some of his other guys were only doing four reps. And I asked him, I was like, you know, what dictates that? And he was like testosterone levels. The higher test levels, the, the less reps we need because it makes the, the central nervous system more efficient. So in reality, when everything's so efficient, the body works uh, much better in terms of like neuromuscular coordination, testosterone side, high level CNS, we can get more out of less. So they'll do the same amount of work and like the, uh, the training effect only needs four reps, where if your testosterone level isn't that high, um, you know, artificially, uh, you probably need double the volume, eight, nine, 10 reps. And so, uh, that was, uh, something that, you know, Louis said, and I was like, no, oh, that's an interesting point. I wrote it down. And it was actually years later, uh, that I actually read any research to support it. And when I asked Louis about it later on, he's like, no, it was something we observed. I never read any research on it. I just knew that those guys were more efficient. Uh, and like, that's what was interesting with uh, a guy like Louis Simmons, who was in his training system, seeing these variables happening in real time. And only, you know, years later did the, uh, you know, did the research come out to support it, which is also goes back to Charles Paulquin's uh, statement that if you got to wait for the research, you're going to be 10 years behind the game. So I'm wondering uh, if that's the case, what's on the cutting edge right now for research that might be proved 10 years from now that, you know, might be making the difference between, you know, I mean, because if you think about it, we just keep working with the same variables. We have power, strength, speed, you know, rate of force development. Uh, you know, hypertrophy, I mean, the same things are kind of looked over again. I'm wondering, like, what's the next leap? What's the next evolution in terms of strength condition? I think, uh, just to back up what you just said, the way, the way technology in sports is really making a difference now on the field and in research is that nowadays we have tools that we didn't used to have 10, 15, 20 years ago that allows us to uh, maximize efficiency in training, which is what you were just referring to. Like back then, maybe uh, Louis Simmons was just eyeballing and noticing that like someone with like more testosterone was able to express more intensity. So they needed less training volume. Nowadays, we can measure that. We can measure that just by putting an accelerometer on the bar and see how fast they're moving. And I think all this technology and all this evidence supporting that training smart is much more affecting the training art in the meaning, in the meaning like training with more volume and more frequency and overall more like time spent in the weight room, we can be, we can get just as strong doing less volume, doing that right with the right intensity at the right velocity to create optimal adaptation, which is a game changer for many reasons. But in my opinion, the number one reason is where we train as a, and I'm putting myself now in the, under the perspective of a strength and conditioning coach, we work in the weight room uh, to, or on the field doing conditioning or whatever to prepare our athletes to play their sport at a higher level. If we can get to that result, putting in less amount of work in the weight room, get the same outcome 
and allowing them more time and energy to spend practicing their sports, they're going to get better athletes because you become better at your sport by practicing your sport. If I can make you stronger and more explosive with the least amount of time possible, least this spend of energy possible, and then you can go about and just go about your day and play your sport and recover and rest well and perform better, I think you, you hit the jackpot as a strength and conditioning coach. And nowadays we can do that. Like think about the way we handle velocity-based training. Um, let's make just a simple example. Let's say that like for a certain day on your piece of paper, when you develop your program, you have six sets of three repetitions of snatching a 75% one max for that day. Well, you know that you want to develop, you probably want to develop power. That's why you chose that loading. And you create some sort of combination between sets and reps that seems to be reasonable. It's based on like what you read in a book or a journal or a magazine or whatever, but you have no way to prove if they need all those six sets. Maybe they only need one, maybe they need three. But you know, because the evidence shows that if their performance read their velocity, their peak velocity on the bar decreases too much, from set to set, their training effect is going to be compromised. So you put an accelerometer on the bar, you look at the first set, you do some benchmarking, you see what velocity they're hitting rep after rep. And if you start seeing that velocity declining more than 10, 15% by set number four, well, then you call it a day. You stop your training right there. You move on and you do something else. So you have more uh, attention to details. You know what type of action reaction you're triggering. You know how to monitor and map over time external load but also internal load and the same is true for like different type of training like think about heart rate variability now if you do too much volume and you see that recovery being compromised well you know that it's probably best for you to take a day off if you're in the red or like if you're green and you're ready to go you can do a two sessions back to back so we I have a way so i think that hrv shit gets so dangerous uh, it is and, and i'll dangerous. tell you why because like if you only train on the days that you feel good in the green, I start thinking like, uh, you know, what happens? You get up on game day and you're like, oh, it's not in the green. I'm in my red. So like I, I think there's value to it. Uh, I just for guys like us. Uh, yeah. Like <laughs> I, I see people use HRV constantly on the programs and like, hey, you know, my, my thing was in the red. I didn't sleep. And it's not that they're making excuses because I'm, I'm not saying that they are what i'm saying is that they're using it to be like hey you know what today might not be the best day but i've had training sessions that i knew going into it i wasn't feeling my best that ended up being some of my best training sessions and so i think that there's a really interesting balance and i wonder as we get into this like uh, like it can't always be like ah you know and that's what i fucking hated about whoop i hated the whoop uh, for their readiness scores and all that other shit. Uh, like, cause I, I looked at this thing and was like, man, if, if I trained when this thing told me to, I would fucking never train. And so, uh, you know, I mean, at the time I remember I was wearing it, I, I had two young, uh, young twins. We weren't sleeping a ton, you know, business travel. I mean, there were so many factors that were contributing just to shitty HRV. And then I got to the point where I figured out, I'm like, I wonder what there's a hack on this. And so it was like, uh, I think it was, um, uh, I was taking like natural calm before bed. I would go on a 20 minute walk and I started doing some like meditation. And regardless of what happened during my day, if I went on a little short walk, did a little meditation and took some natural calm before bed, I could end up in the green. Yeah. And so I started finding ways to hack it. And I was like, man, if I can like use external forces to hack this thing, how important is it? And, uh, yeah, man, I, I, like, I realized that the technology when they came out was still pretty young and how they were doing it. And I just wonder if it'll ever get to the point 
where it's like, you know, you might not be fully recovered, but you need to get out there and fucking do your job. Yeah. So how do we balance that? I mean, technology serves a purpose. Like it gives you an, an extra tool in your toolbox to be able to interpret results, but it can it cannot be the only thing you look at. And to like echo what you just said, like I, I used Whoop for, I think, close to two years without ever stopping, like just collecting data after data after data. And yeah, we I did were, that. We were one year exactly. Never missed. Yeah. 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 Good. And I mean, I liked it. There's good to it. But like when I did it, that was like at the beginning or shortly before the pandemic. So early, late 2019, early 2020, when the pandemic started, I took on more like aerobic training. So I went, I started running, biking, do more stuff that I wasn't used to do before. And I also did, because I like to experiment with myself too. So I also did that with still weightlifting, doing intermittent fasting and being on ketosis for 28 days a month. Mm. So I really put myself through hell because I, I didn't have anything, anything else to do. So why not? Yeah, let's, and set, I, let's set ourselves on fire and torture ourselves at the same time. Like <laughs> yes, correct. And I realized I got to the point where like, just by fine tuning my program, I was able to be more days in the green than days in the like yellow or red however i got to the point where like i i used to be green at the end of a week of training so like friday but the whoop didn't take into consideration that that was like five days depleted of glycogen and when i tried to go out for a run in my green i i couldn't even keep 50 percent of my intensity because the whoop doesn't, and RA variability doesn't keep everything into consideration. There's much more that goes into it. Like you said, external forces that you can act the system with. So yes, it gives you a tool. It lets you know that like probably you're doing something right about your training because some somehow your sympathetic nervous system is recovering well, but it cannot be the only uh, uh, metric you use to uh, take decisions about your training. You have to keep everything into consideration. I always tell people if they really want to kill their testosterone levels and fuck up their antigen profile, intermittent fast, ketogenic, with a ton of uh, and train seven days a week. If you do that, you're guaranteed to fucking torpedo any uh, antigen profile and any good testosterone you have. I was, uh, it was very intense, and <laughs> I probably wouldn't do that again. Uh, I was able to mitigate the effect of um, ketosis by manipulating the type of fats I was eating in my diet. So mm -hmm. I was able to like buffer a bit of that natural like testosterone decrement that you have. Uh, but still like I kept doing intermittent fasting and I love it. It makes me feel great. But I quit on ketosis. I put in my good carbohydrates on a daily basis and my performance just went up like decently at least. Yeah. Now, uh, when I retired from the NFL, I was in Dr. Amen's study on uh, brain health. And um, the part of my brain that was damaged was over here on the left. And I reached out to a PhD buddy of mine. And he came back with a ketogenic diet, like 30% protein, 70% fat. And I'm, you know, pretty much don't eat a carb. And he said it for a year. So I did that and it was fucking awful. Uh, I can do it for a long period of time, but after a while you're like, fuck, I just want to eat some carbs. And then when you do eat them, it's like a warm blanket wraps you up and somebody gives you a hug. Um, so I agree. Uh, anybody that's like, oh, you know, I love living in ketosis. I'm like, I can do it. And I understand like the neurological effects and I felt better. But uh, after a while you're like, God damn. This is, uh, it, it's not easy to do. Yeah. So, and especially like there's some, uh, endurance athletes like triathletes or, uh, Ironman or whatnot that, um, are still under the impression that if you train in a state, in a state of ketosis, so very low muscle glycogen, 
uh, your body will eventually become better at utilizing fat. And if you can burn more fat, you can spare glycogen and you can run longer at a higher velocity in competition, which on paper makes absolute sense. And people have done that for years. Uh, if you read, like there are research and papers out there that uh, describe this approach to like hypoxia and with carbohydrates, they often refer to train low, compete high, sure. which means train a low level of glycogen and then refeed and compete with higher glycogen levels. And again, on paper, it makes sense. But uh, more recent studies have shown that if you do ketosis or you're in ketosis for too long, uh, your muscles lose the ability to break down glycogen and use it for energy. So you might be able to store glycogen and you might be super compensating glycogen and you can refeed as much as you want. But then if your muscles can't break it down, it doesn't mean that if you adapted to use fat, your performance is still going to be impaired. So what even think, for uh, extreme... What do you think the mechanism, is, uh, the mechanism is for the muscles to not be able to break down glycogen? Uh, I remember years ago um, reading some stuff about people coming out of ketosis uh, where they were losing, um, I think it was losing bacteria or something within the gut that was uh, like, like they, they, they were losing the ability to digest carbohydrates because they had been in ketosis so long that they no longer had like the gut biota to digest carbohydrate. I wonder if there's a, a factor for that in terms of the muscle, if there's, if there's a key, if all of a sudden you find the point where the muscles can't break down glycogen, like what's the mechanism do you think for that oh there is a mechanism like one glycogen or actually glucose is taken out from your bloodstream putting your muscles and stored as glycogen you need enzymes to be able to break down that glycogen and turns again into sugar or glucose and be able to use it and enzymes like anything else in your body upregulate and downregulate so if you condition your body to stay without those enzymes because you don't need those carbohydrates anymore you're simply going to lose the ability to break down glycogen effectively it's just normal adaptation that just recently proved to be the case if you do ketogenic diet for too long. So you, you might be able to, assuming that, because what you described in terms of like discomfort in digesting and absorbing carbohydrates is a fact, like you lose that microbiome that you need to digest and metabolize glycogen or carbohydrates effectively. But let's say that you can even buffer that and contain the damage and still be able to absorb that uh, those carbohydrates in your bloodstream and then bring it to your muscles to supercompensate glycogen. Well, if you have all that glycogen there, but when you go out for a run, you can't break it down. So you can't access it. It's like, if you don't have it. Sure. So whether it's there or not, it's not going to affect your performance. And that's why ketogenic diet, there are, there are still st some athletes who are capable of performing at their best when they do ketogenic diet. But I think those are just, those outliers yeah. who are not affected by average physiology. You know, we look at studies, we look at average across a very broad population. They're always going to be outliers. They're going to claim for the rest of their life, ketosis works great and works for everyone. It works for them, but generally speaking, for the normal chunk of population that we deal with, uh, it may be great for all the health benefit that comes with it, may be great for weight loss, uh, but when it comes to anything that involves athleticism, it's probably not the best way to go. Well, uh, uh, man, I just read a bunch of studies uh, looking at, uh, they were looking at um, for body composition changes for those in ketosis versus, uh, you know, the protein in the uh, total caloric load was equated for athletes with carbohydrates. And the one thing that was interesting was that the ketogenic diets were beneficial in terms of losing fat 
but I remember in the study they didn't gain any muscle, whereas when uh, the, the calories were equated the same, protein was the same, those with carbs actually gained muscle and lost fat. Or, yeah, it was pretty interesting. And so, like, the conclusion of it was uh, that ketogenic diets were extremely beneficial. They, they were muscle sparing. They're good at losing fat, but you're not going to gain any muscle on them. What is that clicking on my fucking headphones? Do you know what that is? Jesus, let's burn this fucking place to the... Sorry, I'm just... I'm, like, it's driving me crazy. I hear, keep hearing this intermittent click in my headphones, which makes me just want to burn the whole fucking place to the ground. All right, sorry. Uh, but like, uh, do, do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I, I apologize for that, but I try to, uh, oversimplify things the most I can, but the number one anabolic hormone that we need to grow muscle is insulin and insulin is secreted in response to carbohydrate intake. So it doesn't matter how much protein you eat and how much you can save your muscles that you just prevent them from, um, go to waste. If you don't have enough uh, circulating insulin day in and day out, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna gain muscle. Like you're not gonna gain muscle mass. So ketogenic diet simply can't work if your goal is to get buff and get big. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, a protein does have a slight insulinogenic effect, and I only know that because yeah. my son's type one diabetic, and so he eats a, a very low carb diet. Is how we manage. I mean, he goes weeks without taking any insulin. Um, is able to manage his type one diabetic. Now he's not like, he's kind of in what they call the honeymoon stage where he still has beta cells that are working, but uh, we manage his diet purely uh, low carb. So he gets about 30 grams of carbohydrates split over three or four meals a day. He, you know, eats, uh, you know, one and a half grams of protein per pound of body weight. And, uh, you know, he's able to manage it pretty well, but it's interesting to look because he wears a CGM constant glucose meter. It's pretty interesting yes. to watch like, uh, his blood sugar rise in response to not only different proteins. So it's different between like actually pork spikes him the least, uh, chicken being the most, uh, steak being kind of like, uh, if I cook, if, if I take it out of the freezer and I cook it immediately, it's fine. If I put it in the refrigerator for 24 hours, spike him through the roof. So I think that's like a histamine effect. So we've dug in, dug in a bunch on that. But, uh, you know, at the most part, like you said, like, you know, um, I think there was, uh, people really vilified insulin as like this evil thing. I mean, and that's, that was the insulin paradox where you saw, um, God, who was a Gary Tobbs and the insulin paradox that, you know, I mean, insulin high. I mean, even to the point where it makes sense, like for, uh, inflammation when insulin is chronically high all the time, inflammation is going to be through the roof, but a healthy individual with a blood sugar of somewhere between, you know, call it, I think, you know, 80 to 90, you know, is going to eat, they're going to get a spike and they're going to come down. And it's been pretty interesting because I've, I don't have it on now, but I've wore a CGM in parallel to my son to see like, Hey, I'm going to eat this and see what happens. And it's pretty interesting to lay my blood sugar on top of some of a type one diabetics. Cause like if I spike, I have a huge drop. Like if I get to 140, I'm going to go down to 70 for him. He'll spike and just kind of stays there. And then it's real slow to come down just because his beta cells aren't as active. But I mean, it's really, I mean, pretty true. I mean, if you ask any, like we had Jay Cutler on there, I bet you he was eating a thousand grams of carbohydrates a day, but it also helps too, to have a really healthy antigen profile. I mean, there's some really cool, interesting research that talks about like high volume steroid use. Those guys can digest more protein because they're into constant protein synthesis and they can just handle a higher volume of calories than they could if they weren't, if they didn't have such a, have a, a super antigen profile. Yeah. Metabolic flexibility, you know, you need to, your tissues need to be able to do what they need to do with what you give them. If they are, they're not capable of metabolizing sugar to the extent that they should, 
then insulin does become a problem because like you said, it's going to be chronically elevated. But if you spike it when you need it and you know your body knows what to do with it and the sugar that comes with it, you're completely fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I do agree that some diets tend to be a bit too high in carbohydrates for some athletes. Uh, th- that tends to be the case. Uh, but nevertheless, going too low on carbohydrates is just as dangerous, you know? Yeah. Now, uh, the the other one, you, you brought up a great point as you were talking about, like, uh, these different endurance athletes thinking that uh, if they stay in a ketogenic effect and their glycogen depleted, that their body will somehow use, car, uh, use fat as a primary source. But that's just metabolic flexibility. And yeah. uh, I, I did a talk for the NSCA on metabolic flexibility and did a uh, way too deep dive in the literature, which was so conflicting. And really the only shred of truth that I found in it was that uh, basically body composition is the greatest predict- predicting factor for metabolic flexibility. The leaner you are, the more muscle you carry in response to fat, the more metabolically flexible you are, regardless of the diet that you eat. So it was pretty interesting after, I mean, it was, I, I worked on that, on that talk for a long, long time. And after reading all this research, there was so much confliction. Basically, the leaner you are and whatever you can do to be lean as shit and carry a high amount of muscle and, and, respond, and a low amount of body fat. Those are the most metabolically flexible people, regardless of what calories look like, regardless of what training looks like, regardless of the intent that I'm going to go out and do. If you're lean, you're metabolically flexible. If you're fat, you're not. I 100% agree. And I would say lean body mass is probably the major contributor to uh, metabolic flexibility, but also how active you are and how much you push your body to use that energy. And again, going back to science, instead of starting from science, if you look at uh, the most recent uh, literature on overtraining and overreaching in general, whether you're looking at strength empowered athletes or endurance athletes, uh, and whether you look at men or women is the same, um, it comes out to uh, the concept of energy availability, which is a fairly new concept in the literature, which is the amount of energy you eat minus the amount of energy you burn with physical activity divided by your, your lean body mass. So how active you are and how much muscles you carry. And every single study published so far shows that in both men and women, if you can preserve a level of energy availability above about 35 kilocalories per kilograms of lean body mass, your hormones are right where they're supposed to be. Your metabolism is right where you're where it's supposed to be. You perform at your best. You don't incur in any overtraining or overreaching and you're capable of recovering. And very rarely you gain weight because everything is working out just fine. If those numbers end up being skewed because, again, your lean body mass changes or you're not as active, then your body becomes less flexible in using energy and all the bad syndrome associated with overreaching and overtraining start to, start to show up. So I, is, I is 100% fat, agree. Is, is, is that because fat is so oxidative that when all of a sudden when there's too much fat within the body and your lean body mass drops and all of a sudden the ratio changes that all of a sudden the fat becomes more oxidative and puts more stress on the system? Yeah, and it becomes... Again, chronic inflammation. Do you think there's an ideal body fat? Percentage? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes and no. I would say yes because my ideal body fat percentage is the lowest you can sustain recovering well in your training process. So the leanest you can be without compromising your performance. Uh, I don't believe there's any benefit in getting unnecessary fat. But even if you are a thrower or like a lineman or whatever the case may be, I think I will always take muscle over fat, no matter what, and how much you weigh. Uh, if there's an optimal percentage 
uh, I think is very much, it, there's too many confounding variables. It depends on too many things. But my take on message is always the leanest you can be without letting diet to affect, negatively affect your performance. Like if you want to be too lean, that becomes a problem too, you know, because you might not have enough energy to train and recover and so forth and so forth. Uh, there's an optimum compromise. And I think that's very much different from person to person. And also from moment in your life, like early on in your career and later on in your career as an athlete, your metabolism, metabolism will change. The way you adapt will change. Aging eventually will happen and your ideal body composition might change. But across the board, the leanest you can stay, the better you, you'll be in general and the healthier you'll be in general. So the, uh, the media pushing the fit fat doesn't have any basis within science check yeah i mean we, I, I i wonder uh well, we, we need a soundbite antonio no, no like uh so i'll i'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tee him up perfectly here uh where is like the cross-section of like you know where you see on the news and this idea of like you know we have to create a more accommodating culture and we can't hurt people's feelings and uh you know i, I was i was watching some people were like you know you can be fit fat and i'm like God, there's no scientific literature to support this. I mean, if we talk about metabolic flexibility and I mean, even anti-aging, it's pretty substantial that the longer you carry excess body fat, you age at a greater rate than those that don't, you know I mean? So, I mean, it's like in all these variables, like there's no variable where actually ex excess body fat is beneficial. I mean, as an offensive lineman, I know I came in too lean one year. I was, uh, I was 7.8% body fat in the bod pod at over 300 pounds. I was the only dude that ever tested over 300 sub 10%. And I, uh, wow. we, we got a bod pad at the Eagles and we put like a bunch of money into a pot. And I think for like the last six weeks, I pretty much, it was like a cup of rice and like 400 grams of, of protein from ground beef. Like that's all I ate for like six weeks. Did like straight up bodybuilding diet and came in lean as shit. The only problem was when we went out there and hit, I started, you know, I, I took a pretty good shot on my shoulder and my rib in practice and dude, I bruised really bad. And I remember the, uh, the docs like, you need to put some body fat on, you're not going to survive. So, I mean, I think like, you know, for offense alignment, body fat, maybe some insulation or, uh, you know, maybe power lifting or some strength sports. I mean, if you look at the Olympic lifter, like look at Lasha, like the, the guy that just, you know, what he snatched like 500 pounds. I mean, he carries a pretty significant amount of body fat, but it helps with his, uh, you know, um, I guess you could say his ratios, or maybe to be able to survive the load of having 500 fucking pounds crash underneath you or 600 pounds. But I think in terms of like longevity and health and performance for most athletes outside of Olympic weightlifting, professional football, maybe throwing like excess body fat is oxidative and ages you and causes some other issues. The answer I always give is the same. Like there is no evidence to show that if you have more fat mass, you perform better, but there is plenty of evidence to show that if you have more fat mass, you're going to be less healthy over time. And that's how I put it. Now, of course, there's no like aesthetic dogma attached to it. You don't have to be lean and ripped to be good. Like you can be at a normal physiological level of body fat and be okay for your body constitution. That shouldn't be a reason why uh, people get this, our athletes get discriminated, whether they, they look lean or not, but to be healthy over a longer period of time, the leanest you can be at your body composition, the healthier you'll be and the more, likely the way i look at it is like if you're healthy you can train longer if you train longer you get healthy over time it's just a, a good cycle of things that happen if you can stay in that active lifestyle even after your career as an athlete i think you hit the jackpot i mean that doesn't get any better you can slow down aging you can prevent chronic diseases there's so much good that comes with it 
and I do agree, there are sports. Um, we actually did a study a while back on weightlifters, and we found that um, women tend to respond, like if you look at just the individual predictors of performance in weightlifting, for women, lean body mass is a stronger predictor than mass, sheer mass in general, whereas for men, body mass still matters. Like if you are bigger just because of like sheer gravity and the load that you put in your system, you can tolerate more loads. But still, even being bigger, I think there's a there's a there's a limit at, at which like you can gain fat and still be okay. You should still be within at least the norm for your body type and body composition. Well, big dogs don't live as long as little dogs. Hmm. So something to always think about. You know, little dogs live to be 17, 18, big dogs live to be seven, eight, or ten. So I mean there's definitely something to that. Um so where do you live out in LA? Uh, we live in Long Beach, uh, okay. but uh, yeah, USC is downtown Los Angeles, so I commute between Long Beach and Los Angeles. Oh no, I I, I grew up in Torrance, Palos Verdes. I'm I'm from the south. Oh nice. Yeah, uh, you know I I grew I went to school uh, high school in Palos Verdes, and uh, all the kids I went to high school with were all you know either went to USC, and I actually got recruited to go play football at USC, and then I went to Berkeley. So. And then I used to live in Orange County, so I know Long Beach. And believe me, I know the 405 freeway and the 110 very, very well. My, my dad went to USC Law School. So This leads me to my, my last question, just a little bit fun. First off, amazing conversation. Lots of takeaways, definitely a re-listen on my part. You mentioned that you live in Long Beach to observe the racing and then <laughs> talked about Austin's got an F1. I'm curious, like you grew up in the culture of racing and – now it's exploded in the U.S. all because of a Netflix that highlighted some racers and like actually got some character in there. Otherwise, U.S. is just NASCAR where we go fast sometimes and then turn left. Uh, so like what is help Americans understand the, the culture of racing and why it appeals to you so much that you choose to commute all the way to USC from Long Beach to live there and go to the freaking race once now, a year? Now, Tex. In terms of the crow's fly, it's not very far. Uh, like like Long Beach, to, yeah, like Long Beach to uh, South Central, you know, where you know we're down by the Coliseum, where he's going. As the crow flies, is not very far. Like, give me Texas uh, reference. It would be, man. I mean, it's got to be fourteen miles. It's got to be easily 12, 13 miles, fourteen miles. Without traffic, at five o'clock in the morning when I go is nineteen twenty minutes. Yeah. Okay. With average traffic, it's easily over an hour. Yeah. So, uh, like, like if I would go drive where I was living in Newport Beach, if I would drive up the four or five, we'd go visit my mom at any other time other than the wee hours of the morning or late at night. It was, and it was 27 to 29 miles. It was a good two and a half, three hour drive. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. People here in Austin are like bitching about traffic. I'm like, until you sit on the four or five with eight lanes either way and a fucking carpool lane for three hours. I well, I'm complaining about one stoplight that they just put in <laughs> yeah. on my commute. It is bullshit, by the way. Uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, uh, like like Long Beach has the uh, the Grand Prix. That, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm referencing. Yeah. But he shared that he lived there because of the race. Well, it's super cool. If, have, did you, have you never been? They actually race through Long Beach, like it's through the city. Well, that's what I'm trying to. That's the question. Like, help us understand the appeal to the sport. Like in U.S., it was so simplified: go fast, turn left sometimes. But then, yeah. like F1. And Indy has tried like to explore different strategies in racing and making it challenging. I think I've, I've been asked that question quite a bit uh, since I moved to the States. 
And I think the easiest answer for me is always the same. Like growing up in Italy, uh, if I were to put in the same perspective for like American sports, the same way here we have American football and basketball as the baseball, maybe as the predominant sports. If you grow up in Italy, it's either soccer or F1. And F1 is not just F1, it's just Ferrari. Ferrari is a question of national pride. When yeah, F1 true. is on, the entire country is watching F1. When Ferrari wins, the entire country is talking about Ferrari. On Monday morning after a race, every single magazine is talking about Ferrari. It's like you either love it or something is wrong with you if you live in Italy, you know? <laughs> and did, growing- did, did you see Ford versus Ferrari? Yes. I mean, you can get a little bit of like the Ferrari arrogance. I was rooting against him. What? Oh, you, you mean the <laughs> evil Italian? Yeah, I mean, I was go Matt Matt Damon. Let's go. Yeah, with uh, I mean, okay. it, it was it was. A, I mean, there's been a, a. I mean, an ego. I mean, the amount of money. Like, so I always remember uh, Jesse James told me something pretty good. He goes, "Not everybody could own a West Coast chopper, but everybody could own a T-shirt." So that was where he made his money selling West Coast chopper apparel and merch. So like, you know, not everybody owns a Ferrari, but like, I mean, I've like, I, I use Ferrari for an example in, uh, in my talk on athleticism in that I'm not necessarily a Ferrari fan, but if I hear a front engine V12 Ferrari pull up, I know exactly what it is and I can turn with just the sound. Um, yeah, I, I always grew up a, a Porsche fan, so I've owned Porsches, but like a front engine V12 Ferrari, like that sound. And then they, um, they did an incredible documentary on the factory they built to build, uh, what was it, the 599 uh, Ferrari. I don't know if you saw the documentary, but uh, to the point where like they take the motors and they build them and then they put them into a room and they tune them to the exact decibel that they, you know, that Ferrari owns the, you know, the patent on a certain sound. What? They paint. Patent the sound. Yeah, literally. There's a, a signatures Ferrari sound of decibel that they have done research that elicits a response within the body. Similar to love. Oh, it, it, it's, it's fucking, it's, it's unbelievable. That's why I, in my talk, I use it where if, if I hear a front engine V12 Ferrari, and this has happened to me, I've stood on the street and I can hear it behind me and I turn and I know exactly what car it is. And I'm not a Ferrari fan and I know that sound. Uh, they painted the cars. They built an entire uh, greenhouse like uh, with, uh, um, with natural light and, and plants to paint the cars because they wanted to paint them in a natural environment because they couldn't get the color and the look they wanted in a paint booth. So they created a natural environment to paint the cars like hydro forming the rails because they didn't want to weld. I mean, like dude, the, the innovation and the, like I, I thought to myself, man, like anytime I ever see like a, like a, the, the last of the manual transmissions was the 599 front engine Marinello. Uh, every time, like I, you know, if I'm on Facebook, I always kind of type in, I'm like 599, there might be one just sitting around that maybe some guy just wants to get rid of. And you're going to see me pull up in a, a black 599 Marinello front engine V12 for our manual gearbox. And that would it's be. It's got to make dream. it through the driveway first. That's part of a problem. We're probably going to have to get it paved because we live down a dirt <laughs> uh, fucking dirt road. So I'll just give you a little history. Uh, where we live here in Texas, there's a bunch of hills and we have a huge creek in our backyard. Well, the problem is, is like all water flows downhill. So all the water flows down to our creek. And where our road is, we're kind of like in between kind of like a wide, uh, like a, uh, there's like a, a, it's called a dry creek. So like, um, or a wet creek, I think, uh, that only runs when it really pours rain and actually runs through where our driveway, like the, the road to get to our house. So I've gone through and I've put road base and done all this shit. We get a big run, floods the whole thing out. So my next thing is uh, when I, I'm, I'm going to put blacktop and I'm actually going to pour concrete where that big hole is. 
and I'm going to have to literally pour concrete and I'm going to put Pour it. the Ferrari. Yeah, specifically to find that Ferrari. Pour the Ferrari. <laughs> there, believe me. I like uh, a, my brother's boss had a black 599 Marinello front engine V12 Ferrari manual gearbox, tan leather interior. Oh, dude, just the process of the leather for a Ferrari is unbelievable. There's a specific farmer that raises cows. And those cows, like they don't use any barbed wire because they don't want them to like hit anything and mar like mar the the hide. And then there's a dude who his family has made all the hides for all the Ferraris. I mean, it's unreal. And then they take them, they tan them. There's a guy that goes and selects them. All those are all handmade. They don't push any of that. Out. It's all made within. I mean, dude, the attention to detail. What is like? Do they do this the same with like the F ones? Yes. Every yeah, like it's the uh, like. So, uh, like, they always talk about, like, Swiss innovation and the Switch watch. Did the Italians, in terms of, like, Ferrari, and, like, the only people that are probably as insane as, as the Italians in that regard would be the Germans, like, for Porsche. And, like, you know, that's why in F1 it's, like, Ferrari versus uh, versus Porsche and these other big, you know, big people because they have wow. so much money to dump into Well, now it. I need to rewatch Ford versus Ferrari Dude, and, like, I, not be such an idiot I, American. I, I got to send you the documentary because you have to watch. Like, like this factory won, like, so many wards of innovation because they did so many things outside the box and their attention to detail was so amazing. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, and, and I'm not necessarily a Ferrari fan where I feel like I have to own National one. pride. Yeah, like a national pride. But uh, I respect attention to detail and innovation and, like, more importantly, um, I always think it's weird that uh, somehow in this country we, or even in the world, oh, not, not necessarily in Italy, but like craftsmen and especially people that, that build cars, mechanics, whatever, are kind of viewed as like a more lower class, like blue collar. Whereas in Italy, like the guy that builds Ferrari or builds the motors for Ferrari, I mean, that guy's, you know, I mean, that guy's top of the heap. So. And think about that too, like every other sport. And it's the same in Italy for soccer or in the States for American football. What about uh, 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 bike racing? That's big in Italy too, isn't it? It's, it's big, but not as big as motorsport. Like Ferrari is one. There's not many Italian F1 teams. It's one. And when they win, the entire, the entire country goes nuts. If you Google uh, Japanese Grand Prix of 2000 in Suzuka, is the year that Michael Schumacher won the world championship after 23 years that Ferrari had won a championship. That was broadcasted in Italy probably between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. The entire country was watching TV on like streets, bars everywhere up to watch Ferrari. Like it's just, it's part of our culture and it's just as much as it is, it's part of our history because Ferrari was one of the leading forces after the Second World War to drive economy in Italy together with Fiat. So it's, it's, it's also a cultural thing. It's not just sport. Like when you walk through Maranello, when you walk through Modena, the entire city is paid as Ferrari employees. They, they, they make it, Ferrari gives a living to all these people living in the town where Ferrari is built. So it's just a question of pride for all of us. And I, I was obsessed with it since I was yeah. like, I don't know, four Dude, years old. Uh, you know the story of Lamborghini, right? He, they made tractors. Oh, and, and the, the, uh, the, you've they, told me. Yeah, the story. guy for Lamborghini. Like went to like have a Ferrari made and and like Enzo Ferrari made some comment about like uh you know like basically made some flipping comment about his tractors whatever and it was so insulting that Lamborghini pivoted from tractors and started making cars. Right, <laughs> it's so, true. Yeah, is it's, Lamborghini Italian? Yeah. Yes, and not many people know that Enzo Ferrari himself he raced for Alfa Romeo. 
Alfa Romeo, which is a very popular brand in the States too, is actually older than Ferrari. And Ferrari started his own business building cars to compete against Alfa Romeo. Yep. And then like, like, like the Ferrari has the horse uh-huh. and then Lamborghini has a bull. So the idea was that they, you know, so, I mean, there's some really interesting history in this racing and the car spite. stuff. A spite yeah, car. And, and, and I'm not a Lamborghini fan at all. So, I mean, the only Italian car, I mean, one of these days I'll find that 599 Marinello. Oh God. I, I could see the look on, on my Facebook wife's marketplace. I, I, well, who knows? It'll, it'll vision pop board. Uh, yeah. I'll put it on my vision board. I just know the, the, my wife's, an, I, I'm married to an amazing woman. She, uh, if I came home in that thing, I know she'd be like, huh. Can I drive it? <laughs> so it was funny. I, I said to the dually, she's like, hey, can you move uh, the dually truck? It's in the driveway. I'm like, you move it. She's like, not today. Maybe later. Oh. I'm like, yeah, all right. So, well, dude, thanks so much for, yeah, dude, uh, awesome. for for coming on the podcast and helping us understand the research and just uh, having an intelligent, amazing conversation, especially about Ferraris. Thank you, guys. It was amazing. I had a great time. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. But... Before we cut off, is anybody wants to get a hold of you because they want more information or they want to connect? How do people get a hold of you? I think the easiest way is Instagram. I'm not very good with social media in general. And my Instagram page has either a picture of my wife because she's gorgeous, my dog because she is very cute, or Ferrari. Doesn't have a lot of pictures of me, but it's my profile, it's my account. So it's Antonio underscore Squilantes, yes, yes. Uh, and everything I do with the NSCA is out there, everything I publish in terms of abstract. Somehow I, t- I try to share that on social media on Instagram because I'm not very good. I don't go to Twitter because I think people like to fight too much on Twitter and I'm not a Man, big fighter. Uh, like, so years ago, there was a really cool uh, research article that came out that they related, like they went and they did like a whole bunch of like personality analysis on a bunch of men. And then they, they actually tested their androgen profiles and, you know, testosterone or whatever. And what they equated was that the higher the testosterone, uh, the easier and the, like the more like happy go lucky guys were. So like kind of, it broke the misconception. You know, you think of like the angry, you know, guy in the gym, high testosterone, actually, uh, the guys with higher testosterone were like more relaxed, easier to be around and just better generally, uh, like had a better sense of well being. Uh, the guys who were real angry and pissed off and fighty and backbitey had lower testosterone. So in this uh, blog post I did, I was like, you know, when you meet somebody who's a pretentious asshole and, uh, and, and a, a prick of like major, you know, level, uh, you need to pity him because he's probably got really low testosterone levels. When I get on Twitter, it just seems like a whole bunch of dudes with low testosterone levels backbiting each other in 140 characters or it's at 160. I can't remember. Two I agree oh, so much. A, Allegedly. I'm yeah, not. Uh... Well, they, they upped it. It used to be 140 or 160. And now I think they've upped it. But uh, it just, every time I get on there, I'm like, God damn it. First of all, how do people have this much time? And fuck, they seem petty as shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very aggressive. Very aggressive. Well, so. again, Antonio, thank you very much. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Antonio on Instagram at Antonio underscore S-Q-U-I-L-L-A-N-T-E-C-S-C-S. Until next time, bye! Oh.